0: They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss.
1: This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture, with me, Neil Denny. On today's show, Alexander Hemon on his new novel, The World and All That It Holds. Alexander Hemon is the author of The Lazarus Project, which was a finalist for the 2008 National Book Award and the National Book Critics Circle Award and the New York Times bestseller, along with several books of short stories, The Question of Bruno, Nowhere Man, which was also a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award, and Love and Obstacles, and the novel The Making of Zombie Wars. He has also written the essay volumes The Book of My Lives and My Parents' This Doesn't Belong to You. Among other accolades, he has received a genius grant from the MacArthur Foundation, a Guggenheim Fellowship, the Penn W.G. Seabold Award for a Writer in Mid-Career, and the 2020 John Dos Passos Prize. He co-wrote the script for The Matrix Resurrections and produces music as Cielo Hémon, and he currently teaches at Princeton University. And today, we're going to be talking about Alexander's latest book, which is The World and All that It Holds. Alexander, welcome to Little Atoms.
2: Thank you. Nice to be here.
1: Can you, first of all, tell us how you would describe the novel?
2: Well, the novel is a is a love story between two men, both of whom are Bosnian. The main character is Rafael Pinto, a Sephardic Jew born and raised in Sarajevo, whose uh, native language is Ladino or Spaniol as they called in Sarajevo. And the book starts at the beginning of in 1914, on the day the Archduke Franz Ferdinand was assassinated in Sarajevo. And then Pinto ends up in the trenches of what is now western Ukraine, and back then was the easternmost province of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, Galicia, where the Bosnians fought in the Austro-Hungarian army, where he meets Osman, where he meets him in the barracks, but they're lovers by that time. And then follows them uh, one way or another with a certain complication that I will not give away, all the way to Shanghai, by way of Central Asia, that is today's Uzbekistan and Tashkent, and then further east to via Kashgar and Korla through the Taklamakan Desert to Shanghai. And there's an epilogue in Jerusalem in year 2001, so it covers the short 20th century between 1914 and 2001. And it, the basic structure is really love and obstacles. It has kind of basic epic structure, the oldest literary structures you were in the history of humanity, where the heroes, the characters, move through space and run into obstacles and try to stay alive, and stories are generated from those encounters, except my characters are not such, you know, heroic figures as that Odysseus or, you know, even Don Quixote.
1: So you mentioned that there's there's an epilogue to the book, and I wanted to talk about the narrative voice of the book because it's told as if by a writer, perhaps a fictionalized version of yourself, who intercedes in the story, talks about research they've been doing into and I'm doing inverted commas here, historical characters and events mm-hmm. that happen in the book. And then we we meet that writer at the very end in the epilogue, basically talking about how the story came about. And so, tell us about this choice of this narrative voice.
2: Well, there's a number of reasons that I do that. I've done similar things in my previous books. The primary reason I would say is that it is important to me, and in terms of constructing a book, that the narrator is part of the same history, part of the same text as the characters. There's another way to, and not necessarily inferior or superior. This way, the other way to narrate historical novels is to keep the narrator entirely outside of it and just narrate from a kind of position of authority and limited historical knowledge. Because Rafael Pinto and Osman come from Sarajevo and we are kind of part of the same history of migration and Bosnia and war and uh, complex identities, it was important for me to establish uh, narratively the continuity among all of us, I think. And so it is more than a simple, you know far more I I would like think, than a simple postmodernist gimmick, right? I I cannot take myself out of my narratives because I have a sense that I have lived them in some way before. Although obviously I have not lived through this experience because you know ends in nineteen forty nine. I mean the experience of Pinto and osman.
1: Well talking about years, apparently it took (laughs) it's taken at least twelve years to actually write the novel. It's been quite a long process and obviously you've written other books and you've been working on other things in between. So why that
2: long? Uh, well, I mean, it's, it's an ambitious project. It required a lot of research. And I know there's at least 12 years of writing because I signed a contract based on proposal with my British publisher, Picador, in 2010. I cleared that fall to start working on the novel, do research, cleared the year, in fact. So I thought I could, you know, research and write. But it was, that was the year when my daughter got ill and died, and which threw off many plants and, and you know, caused... Our oh, strife, shall we say, and 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 so I, I was working on other things too, and uh, writing and dealing with grief, I suppose, and then always knowing that I would return to the book because it, the book stretches, as I was saying, a, a short 20th century across the continent. It required a lot of research, and what I did and had to do is I would research and read books before I would write a chapter. I would research and read books about that part moment in history and that region or that part of the world, and then I would, after having done enough research, I would then write a chapter, and then I would do research for the next chapter. and So So that was not a simply a, a simple matter of sitting down and writing stuff down. It was a, a more complex operation, and it was conducive to this mode of working, which is not exactly, you know, I didn't come up with it because I thought it's the best way, I just didn't have another choice, was to work on four. At some point, I was working on four different books at the same time, plus scripts, plus various op-ed and pieces and essays, plus moving to Princeton, plus a number of other things. And so the work was slow because I was doing it in such chunks, each of which was complicated unto itself. And then I had to put all that together, obviously. Most of the work, however, I did, the most intensely at least, I worked in the course of the pandemic between 2020 and 2022.
1: Tell us something about Rafael Pinto. So who is he when we meet him at the start of the novel?
2: Rafael Pinto was, was Sarajevo-born in a Sephardic Jewish family. His native language was Aladino or Spanish, as they call it in Sarajevo. But he went and his father owned a, a pharmacy where he sold herbs and traditional medicines. Because Bosnia, at the end of the 19th century, until you know this fateful day of um, June 28, 1914, was occupied by the Austro-Hungarian Empire, Bosnians had access to Vienna and the rest of the empire. So Pinto goes to the university in Vienna and studies pharmacy and comes back and changes the way that the, when we meet him, the pharmacy is an apotheque now, a little more modern. He's excited about the oncoming century of progress. And so he's also, he, he likes men, he's what we would today call gay, but back then that was not part of the vocabulary, that kind of identity it was not available as it is now. And so when we meet him, he is in his apotheque. It's the day the Archduke comes to Sarajevo. A handsome Rittmeister comes into his apotheque and flirting ensues. And then he follows the Rittmeister out of the apotheque to continue the flirting, but then finds himself witnessing the assassination of the Archduke and his wife. And then his entire world and everyone else's is thrown off. And he you know, starts moving east through the territories of war and despair.
1: And so he ends up Fighting for the Austro-Hungarian Empire in Galicia, as you mentioned, and we'll come back to that in a minute. But it's a good time also then to introduce us to Osman. Tell us something about him.
2: Osman is also, sorry even an orphan of Muslim background. While Pinto is a as a sanitäte, right? He's a unit doctor, as it were, and is there in the battle. Osman is um, uh, what's the word for it? He is a, uh, not a deputy, but he, he takes care of an officer, right? And he's a charming storyteller who knows many things and manages to take care of things. The two of them, they share a trench, they sleep together. And then in Galicia, when we find them, this is in the second chapter, we find them, it is a a calm before a storm because what is known as the Brusilov Offensive begins. This is also in June, 1916. And the Brusilov Offensive was a Russian offensive that attacked the positions of the Austro-Hungarian forces and also German forces and broke through the front and that operation essentially crushed the Austro-German and German forces and a million soldiers died in that operation and Pinto and Osman become prisoners of war and then are sent to Central Asia to Tashkent where one of the places where Russians kept their prisoners of war.
1: So Osman is, he sings Bosnian folk songs and tells stories and he's is well-loved by the other men for his storytelling abilities. And he tells one particular story. I wanted to know to what extent the stories that he tells are real or inventions of your own. There's a particular one about, um, is Alicia Derseles a strong man? Um, Is this a real story?
2: Alia, yes, Alia Jerzelis. Alia Jerzelis is a, um, a hero of Bosnian folklore. And uh, the source for that story is, in fact, a little uh, compendium of Bosnian folk stories. In fact, more specifically, Saevan folk stories. I can't remember the name of the author now, but, you know, it's not translated into English, really. And so, it, these are, is one of the stories that came from the, the culture of Serbia, from the Islamic uh, culture of Saeva. And Alia Giselle is is a well-known figure. Um, the story about the Vila, however, I did not know before I started doing research for the book. Vila as a fairy, right? They have a kind of an affair alia Gercel is in the villa. Yeah, so I mean, it's a real story in that I was not the first one who told it, but uh, and probably I hope won't be the last one.
1: And so Tashkent. So we're in what was then Turkistan, is now Uzbekistan and Turkmenistan, that sort of area. And well, tell us first of all what sort of conditions Osman and Pinto find themselves in as prisoners of war there, but also something about, I guess, the relationship between. Because obviously, this is now after the, um, the Russians are out of the war, the Bolsheviks take over. Mm-hmm. And so they find themselves basically abandoned in a country that's being taken over after the revolution. And so something about, I guess, the, the relationship of that area with the, um, the Bolsheviks.
2: Well, I mean, at that time, that was the periphery of the empire. The Russian Empire, which is why the Russians uh, sent prisoners of war there, right? But when the revolution in the metropolitan Russia started, right, it took a while for the ripples to reach Tashkent, which ripples were really various, you know, um, struggles and chaotic conflicts and no one knowing what's going on, who's in charge, who's not in charge. Bolsheviks turned out to be uh, bandits and bandits turned out to be Bolsheviks or converted into Bolsheviks. At some point, the Russians, because the whole thing was falling apart, they just released all the prisoners of war. Some of them joined the Bolsheviks, including the Cheka. So Osman joins the Cheka because it's the opportune and wise thing to do to protect them effectively because they have limited ways, in fact, no way to return to Sarajevo at the time. And of course, Central Asia was one of the arenas of the so-called Great Game, you know, the colonial competition between the Russian and the British Empire. So that um, one of the characters who shows up at that point is a British major who is sent from the Raj to check British Raj across the mountains to go to Central Asia to see what the Bolsheviks are up to. This is the character of Moser Ethering, who is based on Colonel Frederick Bailey, who did much the same thing. And so once Moser Ethering lands in Tashkent, which is what happened to Bailey too, the Bolsheviks start looking for him. Anyway, long story short, Osman decides that it would be good for them if he helped Bailey and because Bailey could help them get out of Tashkent and return home. And then adventures ensue in that particular chapter and then subsequent chapters. Um, Meanwhile, Pinto is working at a hospital and becomes friend with a Russian Jewish doctor, Isaac Abramovich, who has a daughter and they spend time with him and become friends. And uh, Isaka Abramovich has a special understanding of their relationship and their love for each other. And is a kind of a co-conspirator with the two of them hiding Moses Ethering in his basement for a little while.
0: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot.
1: Listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Alexander Hemon, and we're talking about his book, The World and All That It Holds. And Alexander, you just mentioned where Osman and, and Pinto have ended up in hiding. Although Osman is is basically working um, for the secret police as a means to sort of help them escape. In their escape, there's something significant that happens at this point, which we won't we won't go into. But another character comes along who we then follow for the rest of the book. And that is Rahela. Tell us something about her.
2: Rahela is um, Isaac Abramovich's granddaughter. Um, Her mother is Clara Isakovna. Isak Abramovich's daughter, she's born as they're trying to escape from that area and going east. And Clara Isakovna dies. And so Pinto takes her along with him and takes care of her for the rest of his life beyond that point.
1: They encounter in this escape um, a place called Kola, and there's been an enormous massacre there. Um, and there's a character, a sort of terrifying character called Baron Tutenberg. What is this based on?
2: Well, there was a the famous white Baron, who's totally insane, um, who, uh, Baron Ernberg Stern, who started his own militia made of Cossacks and, and Buddhist monks and Buddhist warriors because he converted to Buddhism. And uh, some of the Buddhists in the area, in the area being Mongolia, in the historical, in the real historical situation, as an incarnation of one of the early Buddhas, and so he becomes, he starts this insane campaign of murder and pillaging, having had visions of uh, of a row of gallows from Mongolia to Moscow, in which Jews and Bolsheviks are hanging, and he believed in reincarnation, which also meant that he was okay with killing everyone in any given city because they would be reincarnated as something else. It's a, one of the most bizarre episodes in the history of, well, early 20th century in Europe and Asia, and certainly in former Soviet Union. He fought with the Bolsheviks, and then he was so cruel to his own troops that eventually abandoned him. But because of the geographic distribution of the novel, I moved um, this whole storyline further south to Korla, which is today's Jiang, western China, where the Uyghurs live and are being prosecuted, persecuted, sorry. And so in Korla... Pinto and Rahela survive a massacre miraculously when Baron and his troops come in and kill much of the town.
1: Yeah, I mean, I was going to say, it obviously can't be a coincidence that this is basically a massacre of Uyghurs, which is something that's literally happening as we speak right now.
2: Yes, absolutely. I mean, it is uh, geographically logical for him to end up there as opposed to Mongolia. I mean, I this is the kind of obsessive stuff that I have done with this book and other books, too, for that matter, is studying the maps and see what are the possible paths in which Pinto and Rahela could take to make it to this point? And then, and you know, after this point, they cross the Taklamakan Desert and end up in Shanghai. So it is also that because the Baron is a, an active Buddhist, but of course, we perceive Buddhism as a peaceful religion now, which is a kind of a chosen tradition that was um, obviously available in Buddhism, has always been available, but it's also politically expedient. Whereas this whole tradition of violence, war, how would a war invested Buddhism where various Buddhist divinities massacre entire population? There's a Buddhist goddess that killed all of her children and wears a necklace of their hands and limbs on her neck right and so I wanted Baron to kind of as the real Baron did right express this philosophy of perpetual war. Baron urban Stern said, war creates life, or something to that effect, and sort of totally inverse of what we, what I believe in. I believe that war ends life, but someone like that believed in perpetual destruction of the world as a way to live.
1: We eventually end up in Shanghai, the last part of the book, or the last part of the book before the epilogue, takes place over a number of years, so from 1932 to after the Second World War in Shanghai. And our characters have spent the vast majority of the book basically as refugees, moving from one place to the other. And and one of the things that comes out of the story, which I wasn't aware of, of this period of time, if we think of you know the, the enormous amount of displaced people between you know the First World War and and of course after the after the Second World War, is the um, the Nansen passport. Can you tell us what that was?
2: The Nansen passport was effectively a refugee passport. That's a vast population was displaced by. World War I and the revolutions, the League of Nations was issuing Nansen passport, this international refugee passport which people could move. Once the League of Nations was disbanded, then, they, you know, there were no Nansen passports. Shanghai was interesting because it has this administrative situation where two-thirds of the city were controlled by foreigners, by Westerners. And the International Settlement and French Concession And there was a Chinese part of town, right, which had a different jurisdiction, which is what the Japanese kept attacking while staying away until 1941 from the international settlement and the French concession. But because of this situation, Shanghai attracted refugees and people, stateless people, right, who could make it to Shanghai. You didn't need a passport to get to Shanghai. You just couldn't get out of Shanghai without a passport. So, that part of China and Shanghai in particular was full of White Russians who escaped via Siberia, uh, via, via Siberia, escaped the revolution via Siberia. Harbin was a mm-hmm. north of Shanghai was a huge Russian city. To this day, there's Russian architecture in Harbin, but many of them made it down to to Shanghai and, and were kind of this uh, indigenous population, non-native indigenous population, because they were poor, they had no passports, and there were many other refugees with the beginning of, of um, World War. To, and the prosecution of Jews all over Europe, there was a, a wave of Jewish refugees who somehow ended up in Shanghai. Among other things, there was a Japanese consul issuing visas in Lithuania and getting people to Shanghai, particularly the parts were controlled, eventually controlled by, by the Japanese. So there was a, a long um, story about all kinds of refugees ended up in Shanghai. And then when the Japanese attacked Shanghai, the Chinese part in 1932 and 1937, and then in 1941, they took control of the entire city after Pearl Harbor. In 1932 and 1937, there were internal refugees. There was the refugees from the Chinese part crossing into international settlement and the French concession. And there were so many of them that I found this detail in doing research that they, there was no space on the streets. So people would climb up. There were skyscrapers all over Shanghai. They'll climb up the skyscrapers looking for a place to put their things down. And so at certain points, during the um, particularly in, in 1932, they were the roofs of skyscrapers or high rises rather were full of refugees because there was no space on the ground.
1: You've told us about Major Moser Ethering, who is a, basically a representative of that idea of the the spy for the British Empire um, in the early twentieth century. And in, in Shanghai, we meet another man, Henry Krantz, who we won't talk about the role he plays in the story itself but seems to be a representation of the post-war American foreign policy, a new, uh, you know, a, a different way of an empire dealing with the rest of the world. Tell us something about, something about him, where he comes from.
2: Well, he's a kind of oblique homage to Graham Greene's um, The Quiet Man, with a sort of seemingly naive American who turns out to be very insidiously <laughs> evil. But when I started writing this book, one of the things I thought I had, one of the decisions I thought I had made was that I wouldn't have any Americans in the book. But there's a scene in Shanghai where Pinto goes to meet Moser Ethering after some years. He had met him earlier before. I'm earlier in in, in Central Asia. And they take an elevator in uh, the Cathay Hotel, the fancy hotel where Moser Ethering stays. And as I was writing this scene, Henry Kranz and his wife at the time, Maddy, just showed up. And I started writing writing that, and then suddenly there was Henry Kranz, indelibly present in my own narrative, and I didn't really want to anymore to get him out of it. So after that, he assumes a role in the narrative and, you know, retains a presence, shall we say.
1: Can we talk about the themes of love in the book? There is love between the two men, Osmond and Pinto. They have this bond that transcends life fundamentally, um, but also... A strong bond between a father and a daughter, Pinta and Rahela. Obviously, you mentioned that you lost a daughter yourself, which is just, just the most unthinkable thing. And one can't imagine this book being the same. That bond between the father and the daughter in the book without that, I guess.
2: No, I mean, it is not something that I could avoid even if I wanted to. So it is part of my experience as a person, as a father, and as a, as a writer that, you know, I was taking care of my daughter and then she died. And so, and also I have two daughters who are well their alive, thank God. And I have also, with my wife, obviously, we we're taking care of them. And so there's something profound about this constant, continuous Relentless need to take care of your children, and I wanted Pinto, who's you know uh, basically a very very kind man, and who treats Rahela as his daughter, although biologically she's not his daughter because he thinks she might be Osman's daughter. He takes care of her through the most difficult circumstances, and th- th- this is you you um, wise to bring up the the issue or the theme rather of, of love here, because anyone who's has been a parent, or not anyone, but many people have been parents, know that love is a daily practice, right? There's this notion of romantic love floating around the culture in various ways, and that's lovely too, but it's always kind of abstract. But for parents and for children, although they might realize it a little late in life, it is the daily care. It is body-to-body care. There's a moment in the book where Pinto cleans sand out of Rahela's nostril, and sort of that micro-care, where you take care, the you know little pimples on your child's uh, hand or you know little scratches this kind of care is, is the continuous constant endless deep and profound application of love to someone you love and this obviously it's not just for children it could be shared between people who are not biologically related who are partners or are spouses and so I wanted to incorporate love to embody love that way
1: to finish this off can I get you to read us a bit
2: yes of course from the first sentence, the Holy One kept creating worlds and destroying them, creating worlds and destroying them, and then, just before giving up, he finally came up with this one. And it could be much worse, this world and all that it holds, as I certainly know how to get my hands on some interesting stuff around here. Let's see. Lapis Infernalis, laudanum next to it, Lavender. Pinto took the laudanum off the shelf, knocking over the lavender tin, which miraculously did not break open, when it hit the floor. He released a drop of laudanum onto a sugar lump, washed the brown stain bloom, then placed it in his mouth. While the sugar and bitterness dissolved on his tongue, he picked up the lavender, dipped his nose into the tin, and inhaled. Vast Mediterranean flower fields stretched inside him, the blue sea lapping at his soul, a turquoise sky and swallows floating above it all, the laudanum sailing on his blood all the way to his mind and then beyond. To all things created at twilight on the Shabbat eve, the Lord wisely added laudanum just to help make everything more beautiful and bearable. Now was Raphael Pinto much better prepared for the Archduke Franz Ferdinand von Ostreich Este, heir apparent to the Habsburg Empire and Inspector General of the Imperial Armed Forces and for the whole spectacle he was bringing to Sarajevo just to see how we live here. We live rather well, Your Highness, I must say, provided there's enough laudanum and lavender on hand. Thank you very much for your kind concern. And since this is an enterprise of providing remedy for the body as much as for the soul, we are sure to have plenty of whatever we might need. Long live the Emperor, the Lord be praised, and bless you too. After a drab, rainy week, the morning was sunny and the light broke through the windows as never before, rearranging the checkered floor into unprecedented patterns. The sugar was now completely dissolved, but the bitterness lingered, tickling his tongue. God wrapped himself in white garments, and the radiance of his majesty illuminated the world, and right here, on the floor of the Apotheque Pinto, we can now behold a little patch of one of those very garments. There might be a poem for me to write about the light shifting and altering the visible. God's garment, it could be called. But then, who would ever care about any of it? No one cares about light and what it does to the soul. Not here in the city, behind God's back. Ever since Vienna, Pinto had been writing poetry in German. He wrote in Bosnian too, but only about Sarajevo. He even tried to write in Spaniel, but that always felt like his Nona was writing it Everything always sounding like an Asian proverb, bonita de miel, corancico de fiel, casati i veras, alanio melodiras," and so on. Whereas light is everywhere and nowhere. It exists, but never by itself, always a garment, just as God is knowable, only by the imperfection of his creation. Even darkness is clothed in light. Light makes itself present by its own absence. We carry the darkness inside and return it to the light when we die. That could sound good in German. He put the laundry and lavender up on the top shelf. The apiatic ease set in slowly, like a deep breath, while he studied the floor, smeared with shadows from letters in the window. Apotheke Pinto.
1: So I've been talking to Alexander Hemon. We've been talking about his book, The World and All That It Holds, which is out in the UK now from Picador. Alexander, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Thank you. It was a pleasure. This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by ACAST and published by 89Up. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening.